Hi, this is Johnny Ryan from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, and I'm trying to take the online advertising system that tracks us all and surveils us to court. And you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and this is episode 231 for August 2nd, 2021. And today we've got a, I, I always think my interviews are fascinating, but this is truly fascinating, very interesting, very important interview with Johnny Ryan from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Johnny and his group are suing a lot of data brokers, big names, some of you, some of you would recognize, in Germany, in the EU, over what they're calling the biggest data breach in history. More on that in just a minute. Before I do, a couple quick news items, actually one really, uh, and that is if you are a Mac person or an iPhone person, uh, make sure you've got the latest and greatest updates for macOS and iOS. That would be iOS 14.7.1 and macOS 11.5.1. They had some updates a week ago and then very shortly after that released these little .1 updates. Uh, there's been some speculation that these are related to the NSO group's Pegasus spyware, which we talked about recently. Perhaps fix uh, fixes for those. Uh, I don't think that's been confirmed, at least as of the time of this recording, it hasn't. There's a lot of speculation around that. But nevertheless, they are fixing security bugs that are bad that are could be exploited right now. So make sure you get those updated. I am definitely going to have mine updated because I'm about to go to DEF CON. And rightly or wrongly, I'm going to be bringing my phone. I've actually got a lot of little things to catch you up on, so be sure to stay tuned at the end of the show for that. Now, uh, setting up this interview with Johnny, um, so I'm very happy that he was both willing and able to come on the show to be interviewed about this. I ran across something he had posted or someone retweeted uh, on Twitter about their lawsuit, the, this thing that they're doing in Germany, and we're going to get all into that today, so I'm not going to talk too much about it now. But th- it's all about real-time bidding, which we've talked about on the show a couple times before, uh, I think with somebody from EFF, about how the web pages you visit, uh, particularly the ads on the web pages you visit, are sold like billboards as you drive down the road. I mean, somebody rents that space out, and there's third parties involved that figure out what ads go there. But this is all happening in milliseconds. Like, every time you load that page there's this process going on called real-time bidding and it's all to auction off to the highest bidder as much as they know about you. Hey, this is the person who we think is looking at this page right now. What are you going to pay me to show the ad you want to show? And as an advertiser, you say, okay, tell me as much about this person as you can. And then I'll tell you what I'm willing to pay. And all this is going on automated in the background. And uh, in that short period of time as your web page is loading and you might notice that some of the ads take a little longer to load than the rest of the page that's because under the covers behind the scenes they are trading unbelievable amounts of information on you in real time to figure out who's going to get the opportunity to show you an ad and try to sell you something and as you may expect and as we've talked about in the show before <laughs> that's a lot of highly personal information in fact we're going to talk to Johnny today you're not going to believe uh, some of the things that they're tracking. It's even I was shocked and, and I've been looking at this for years. It's you'll find out. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to Johnny. He'll explain it all. I will say one more thing though, before we start. And that is if you happen to be associated in any way with this ad tech industry, with these marketing firms, these data collectors, these data miners, data brokers, or, you know, Google, Facebook, these kind of companies that are trading in your and my data. Uh, and you're feeling a little, uneasy about that and you and and you might 
well, I hope you feel a lot more uneasy about that by the time we're done. They are looking for more people to help them find information for this case and to help all of us. So there are, you can help. So stay tuned. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that after the interview. But let's not waste any more time. Uh, this is a really great interview. Let's hear from Johnny Ryan from the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Johnny Ryan works at the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, or the ICCL. Uh, he was previously Chief Policy Officer at Brave. Uh, he's testified and spoken at the U.S. Senate, the European Commission, the European Parliament, and elsewhere. It is truly an honor to have you on the show, Johnny. Thank you. Thanks, man, Gary. Good to be with you. I ran across an article. I think it was Twitter. I end up finding a lot of these things, I think, on Twitter and saw that you were filing, your new group were filing this lawsuit about real-time bidding in uh, Germany. And I thought that would just be fascinating. We've talked a little bit about that on the show and we've talked a little about GDPR on the show, but never like in a concrete sense. It's always sort of in the abstract sense. So this is going to be very interesting. I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about that. Um, but let's start with some basics. Uh, one of the things I think was most interesting about your bio was that you actually kind of came from the quote unquote dark side. You were personally involved in internet marketing in some fashion. Uh, so I'd be very curious to know what you're willing to tell us about how you got from there to here and maybe how that experience informed your current mission and purpose. Yeah. Um, so for, for quite a few years, I worked for an advertising technology company and it was on the lighter side of the dark side, but it had to integrate with the dark side. And that gave me a, an insight into how this nasty, dangerous industry operates. And uh, it's pretty shocking. Now, before I joined that advertising technology company, I had worked for a publisher. And I had no sense when I was working inside a publisher of just exactly what was going on on our pages mm. uh, to the data of the people who visited us. And so how did that bring you to uh, where you are today? And, and maybe give us a little more info on the ICCL. Sure. Um, so I joined ICCL uh, less than a year ago. It's a human rights organization in Ireland, which is where I'm from. And it's been around for many, many decades and has been at the forefront of a lot of changes in Irish society um, since the 1970s. Ireland was a very uh, insular, in some respects, quite a dark place. Uh, mm. And that has changed in many, many ways. And ICCL has been part of that journey. But part of its work has been privacy and data protection. And my focus at ICCL is to, essentially, the focus is to litigate. It mm. is to take the GDPR, which is not a real thing at present. It is law mm. on the books, but there is very little enforcement of it. Mm. And to win enforcement at court. That's my objective over the next few years. Well, we obviously need some of that. And uh, we will, that will be clear by the end of this episode. Um, so one of the things that you, your group in particular, is looking at and the basis for your lawsuit that we'll be t discussing in Germany is this real-time bidding process. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the basics. Help our audience understand what what is real-time bidding, RTB, and how, and how does it work? So how does real-time bidding work? Kerry, when you visit almost any commercial web page or use a commercial app, 
nearly every time an auction occurs behind the scenes. And that auction is for the opportunity to show you an ad. And it may involve hundreds, conceivably thousands, but probably tens or hundreds of technology companies that work on behalf of advertisers who might want to show you their particular ad. Now, on a website, when you visit a news website, for example, and read an article, in the space of milliseconds, the editorial content will be displayed on your screen. But just for a tiny moment, and you'll know this because you'll have seen it, the rectangles where the ads will appear are not yet filled. You can see them empty just for a split second sometimes. And in that split second, the website is telling tens or hundreds or, again, conceivably thousands of companies that this person is here on this page reading this thing. And here is an identifier about them. Here is something that we know about them. And probably also here is where they are in the physical world. Now, what that means is in the short term, the publisher of the website or app may think that they're getting a win. It may be that they think that by having the most number of companies receiving information about the people visiting their pages, they maximize the mm -hmm. number mm -hmm. of bidders on right. the thing that they're trying to sell, which is your attention. Ultimately, actually, it's very harmful to the publisher, but we can get into the economics if, if you wish. I suspect you don't. <laughs> the real problem is that actually what I've just described is a data breach. Mm. We don't know, and there is no way of controlling what these companies that receive information about you then do with the information they've received. The industry has acknowledged that there is no technical way to limit what is done with those data. And the kind of data that are sent are actually incredibly sensitive. What I've just described, if I were to say it another way, would be quite scary. The fact that you are reading about a persistent uh, itch in your private parts, for example, <laughs> right. or that you were reading about something very sensitive to your political views, you know, maybe you're into gun rights, maybe you're against gun rights, so, something along those lines, and where you are over time. Each of these so-called bid requests that are sent out about you can be collected and linked together so that a record of what everyone is watching and reading and listening to on the internet and where they are is available to these hundreds or thousands of companies who participate in this system. So it's a, it's a terrifically mega-sized data breach of some of the most intimate things that you can get access to a better person. So let me clarify. So is this that we draw the, the distinction between contextual and behavioral advertising? And contextual mm -hmm. advertising is along the lines of what DuckDuckGo does. And that is if I search on tennis shoes, it may show me ads about tennis shoes. But mm -hmm. otherwise has... He, uh, as we like to say, the Ted Lasso goldfish memory, right? It doesn't doesn't remember anything about you. Mm -hmm. Whereas behavioral builds up profile information about you over time. In this case, for real time bidding, which is it? Are we are they getting uh, collected uh, data about me over time, or is it strictly based on what I'm looking at right now? It's behavioral. It's over time. Okay. Now let me just say one thing: you could have a real time bidding system that just tells you know hundreds of companies, hey, this person is reading about golf. And as you know, when someone's reading about golf, 
you should show them ads for health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, pro provided you can't link that information with any other information about the person, provided you're behaving like a goldfish, there's no reason why you can't release that information, provided it can't single that person out over time. Okay, so behind a lot of this, uh, or at least maybe orchestrating and standardizing some of this process, is this nebulous company called the Interactive Advertising Bureau, or the IAB. Mm -hmm. And then related to that is some subsection of them called IAB Tech Labs. Mm -hmm. So talk to us about who is the IAB and what does this Tech Labs subsidiary do? This is an industry with literally thousands of companies of many sizes from Google and Facebook and Amazon on to tiny, tiny, tiny firms. They all rely on common standards. And those standards are defined by the Interactive Advertising Bureau. Now, the IAB also is the chief lobbyist and so on mm. and provides training. Mm -hmm. But what Tech Lab does on behalf, really, of, of IAB, what Tech Lab does is it provides the technical standard that the industry all use. You've made kind of vague reference to the kind of private and personal information, but let's let's get into the details because your group actually uncovered a document, an internal document. I don't know if this is public uh, publicly available. Um, I'm guessing maybe not. That walked through some almost 1,700 traits and behaviors uh, that the IAB tracks mm -hmm. on us. Give, give us a flavor of, of what kind of information is being reported about us in these uh, requests. And as I'm saying it, anyone listening can also read it because the document is public. Mm. It's called the IAB Audience Taxonomy. There are two versions. They're both very similar. The IAB, after the lawsuit was announced, I think, um, has removed one of the versions. But, mm. <laughs> you know, the one that they left up is is bad enough that it's in the lawsuit too. So you can just mm -hmm. use that. This document, the audience taxonomy, is used by data brokers, anyone who wants to buy or sell data, to be able to coordinate their understanding about a person, about you and me. So it's a big Excel sheet with about 1,700 rows. And each row contains a characteristic about the person in question. So for example, we may not know the person's name, or we might, but let's imagine we're talking about a guy called Casey Parker, whose name we don't know. Hmm. Does he live in a town with fewer than 5,000 residents? That's one variable. Or is, is the town bigger? In fact, is he in a city of a particular size? Does he buy frozen desserts? <laughs> right, so very granular things about your diet. Does he have cancer or tumors? Lots of possible things about your health, STDs, for example, some really shockingly sensitive things like infertility, for mm. example, and even more shocking, does he have a child with special needs? Oh my. Ha has someone close to him died recently? And that is contained in a, in a variable called funeral services, which is categorized <laughs> as an interest. Oh my. Now there's, there's all sorts of variables. One of them is purchase intent. So does this person appear to want to buy, you know, item? The items include things for the defense industry or for law enforcement. Mm. And that's pretty shocking. Yeah. Other variables are bankruptcy. Is this person interested in bankruptcy, uh, debt, payday loans? How much is in their bank account? 
<laughs> how much do they spend a month on their wherever they are staying? I, pre- I presume that's mortgage wow. or rent. So very, very, very specific things about a person. Now imagine you're imagine you're in the defense world. You're you're a uh, you're, you're you're in the industry or you're currently serving in whatever country you may be. The IAB audience taxonomy could be used by one data broker to coordinate from multiple sources the following information about you. This male, aged, whatever his age is, living in this particular area, here's his postcode, here's how long he's been there, here's how many people are in his family or in the in the home, here's how many children he has. He is interested in gambling online and gambling offline. He has debt problems, he has stress, he's worried about his weight, he's depressed, you know, Blah, blah, blah. Here's what it eats. There's more than enough, I would imagine, to start thinking about being able to compromise that person in some way. Right. And, you know, I, I, I say that on this podcast because I know you're concerned a little bit more than my normal uh, interlocutor uh, with security. Mm. But, you know, it is insane that this kind of information is traded. Now, I'm speaking to you from Dublin in Ireland, in Europe, and there are reasons of law based on European history, which make it insane that any of these information right. could be traded in this jurisdiction. Right. But even the practical consideration about national security would suggest to you that a system that broadcasts what we're all watching and reading and listening to and where we are and broadcasts that to hundreds and thousands of companies without any control over what happens to those data, should not only be a fundamental rights issue, which it is for all of us, but should also be a national security issue, which it certainly is for all of us too. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that while, you know, you can say what you will about cultural differences between the Europe and the United States, there are some definite historical reasons why Europe has a GDPR and we don't in terms of, you know, you guys have lived through some very bad cases of privacy violations. <laughs> let's, let's let's put the that that way. You know, the, the, there's the old image I have in my mind of the small Irish village in the 50s where every phone call went through a single switchboard and there was one gossip who got to listen into everyone's conversations <laughs> because there were communal telephones. Um, but that's essentially where we are now again. It took right. us half a century to get back to the small Irish village and <laughs> we're not very happy that we're back. And let me give you one of those historical uh, uh, stories about Europe and then and then turn the lens to the United States. Mm. Now, I should know this because I'm a historian, but I can't remember the year. In the 1870s, something horrific happened in Paris. And what happened was that in one night, a large number of a uh, religious minority called the Huguenots Mm. were slaughtered in their beds Mm. one night. Now, aside from how ghastly that incident was, it was also a logistical achievement. How would you find out where these people lived? And the answer appears to be the tax roll. Mm. Now, <laughs> this is a simple idea. Um, mm. And that is, if you collect data for one reason, you should not use that data for some other reason. Right. You shouldn't give it to anyone else to use it for some other reason. 
But let's turn the lens now to the United States, because in the 70s, that idea that I've just described to you was codified by a working group who were reporting to Caspar Weinberger, who was then the secretary for mm -hmm. education. And actually, he had an incredibly wide portfolio. There were yeah. several nouns in his role. Um, but what Weinberger received was a report that included what are now known as the Fair Information Processing Principles, the FIPS, mm -hmm. the HEW report. And essentially, it set out some incredibly common sense rules or, you know, suggested rules for how to deal with the problem of magnetic tape. Hmm. <laughs> it's one thing to have a small town with a book with ink right. where you can write down that, you know, Kerry is unlikely to pay back any debt because that's the kind of guy he is. Uh, right. You know, the, this idea of a credit report in the small mm, town using right. ink. But when we start having magnetic tape and the credit industry is using people's so social security number to append information to a profile about them that stays around forever, mm -hmm. that's quite another thing. Now, those ideas that were conceived in the United States in the 70s and that were codified for the, for the public sector in the 1974 or 75, I can't remember, uh, U.S. Privacy Act, those are the ideas that are at the heart of the GDPR. So the Europeans uh, essentially photocopied a bunch of American ideas and, and gave them teeth. What they didn't right. do was they never bit. <laughs> so we're still right. waiting for the more to bite. Well, I hate to say it, but we haven't managed to do that really either. <laughs> we... This is true. This is true. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so you've actually somehow captured some of the data that was sent in the actual uh, real-time bidding requests. Like, uh, and what I'm curious as a software engineer, uh, and just for my audience's sake, is there is there any way for me to see what you know? For, if I load a web page and I see that these banners mm -hmm. are you know hesitating to load, and somewhere behind the scenes these requests are being made, are they? They're probably not from my browser, so there's probably no way for me to see personally what's in those requests as it happens assuming that's that's the case is there any way to see them after the fact for me as a as just a regular consumer yeah, yeah. okay so the, there's two ways to do it um first as a just an interesting exercise for anyone interested in uh in how it all works you can see some but not very much of the activity through your browser so if you open developer tools mm -hmm. in, in your browser and you make sure you have no ad blocking switched on, for example, open up developer tools and you will see calls going to ad exchanges. These are the auction houses that process these bid requests that, that actually send them out. Now, what often happens on a web page is not just an auction for an ad space, but an auction of auctions, hmm. funnily enough. And that is known in the industry as header bidding. That auction of auctions is coordinated through your browser. Hmm. So although most of the communication is server to server, and therefore you and I cannot see it, you can see a part of the transaction. So you can get, for example, browser plugins that will show you how much hmm. the winning ad cost oh, really? whoever the advertiser was. Yeah, because you can see with some forms of header bidding, you can see that kind of information. Huh. The browser mediates it. But it doesn't tell you all the really uh, good stuff that's going to be in the bid request. Right. 
The other way you can see what's in a bid request is to simply read the documentation that the industry publishes. Now, this is an industry, as I said, with a very large number of players. They all need to figure out how to work together. So their documents tend to be public. Hmm. And while you're searching for IAB, audience taxonomy, and you'll see the slightly cleaner version that is still online, um, also do a search for a document called ADCOM, A-D-C-O-M, and then IAB Tech Lab. So uh, that'll turn up on GitHub, and it is the rules in the latest version of real-time bidding, version 3.0. It is the rules for what can be in a bid request. So when you scroll through that, you'll see things like GPS coordinates, (laughs) Mm. full URL of what this person's looking at or the name of the app. Uh, You'll see um, something called a content taxonomy. So this is a kind of a classification of the thing you're reading about. And there's a scandal there too. There are various versions of that. The latest version is slightly less awful than the previous one. But the the version that is still in use that IAB Tech Lab came up with for the content taxonomy, Kerry, that classifies what you're reading about right now includes a field for incest slash abuse support. Oh, boy. (laughs) Now, let's, let's... Let's uh, let's give these um, irresponsible people a little bit of benefit of the doubt. It may very well be that there is a worth, there is a, a merit to classifying that content in that way because you might not want to show that kind of person certain things. Right. Maybe. Right. But... In the most generous well, reading, yeah. I mean, this is this is me at my most generous. I sound right. like a Bill at the end of Kill Bill. Uh, <laughs> this is me at my most generous. But kiddo, the problem is that that information can be broadcast out in the bid request right. to tens or hundreds or thousands of companies, and it so happens that I found a data broker that uses exactly that term for a segment of people that it has, you know, up for grabs in Ireland, for example. (laughs) So if I wanted to show those people ads, I could do so using this data broker's data. In theory, I mean, look, a lot of this data is probably junk. And a lot of the the people looking at the ads are probably bots, because the industry is Mm -hmm. rife with fraud. But that notwithstanding, if the industry is to be believed, these things are very, very worrying. So that brings up a really important question, I think. And I think when people think about data and computers, they, they think of infallibility or the perfect recordings. And but it's not true. I mean, there's there's algorithms behind a lot of these things. A lot of these attributes that are being assigned to us are inferred in a lot of cases, and therefore mm-hmm. can be inferred incorrectly. So, mm-hmm. it, generally speaking, how accurate is this data that's being collected and reported on us in these in these RTB bids? And as kind of a follow up. I would have to think that personal data has some sort of a half-life, like it, it its mm. accuracy or maybe its value to advertisers does dwindle over time. So how, how does that work? <laughs> My answer is I don't know, but I'll give you a few examples that might color things. I remember watching or, uh, yeah, watching an interview with the CEO of one of the data brokers that uses RTB data. It's a company based in India called Mobile Walla. And it's active in the U.S. as well. And 
the CEO, uh, in fact, sorry, it was a thing he had written in a marketing magazine. Mm. He was saying what we find very useful in the US is to um, geofence uh, um, churches. And, you know, we just store whatever data we get over about six months. And at the end of that six months, we're pretty certain these people are of that particular denomination. Huh. <laughs> right? Wow. Now, that's probably true, right? And and mm. that information is probably, has a reasonably long life. Uh, right. So what the industry promises marketers, now I'm not saying this promise has merit, but right. what it claims right. and is rewarded with billions of dollars because of this claim, is that it's possible not just to show ads to one person over time, but to show ads to one person over multiple devices. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, let's imagine that they are correct when they claim that they can tie together your behavior on your phone with your behavior on your television and your laptop and your desktop and so on. If there's any truth to those claims, which is, you know, this is the industry promise, mm-hmm. then there's no reason to think that we're not talking about persistent profiles that last, you know, indefinitely. You mentioned one. What are, who are some of the other big names in this business? And I don't, obviously there's Google and Facebook, but they're not, I'm guessing they're not really at the heart of this. I saw an article one point years ago that said there were something like 1,500 to 4,000 data brokers in the U.S. alone. Mm. So are there big names? Or are they just, is it is it just fractured? And why are there so many? Why haven't they consolidated? That seems like the way things <laughs> mostly go in these cases. So who are these companies? Okay, In your question, I think there are two sides to it, Mm -hmm. as there are two sides to the lawsuit. So let me briefly recap. Our lawsuit is taking aim at the input and uh, the output, let's say. On the one hand, our lawsuit is saying that the global standard that is used to broadcast to hundreds or thousands of companies what we're all doing, that's not lawful. And the second thing it's saying is, once those data are broadcast, they, plus other data, are put into hidden dossiers about us, mm. and that system is also not lawful. So um, on the first part, which is real-time bidding, the second part is the audience taxonomy. On the first part, real-time bidding, Google is the biggest player, without mm. any question. And um, there's an analysis of that conducted by the Competition or Antitrust Authority in the UK. Uh, it's very clear that the that, that Google has what competition enforcers would call market power Mm. in that area. Mm -hmm. So Google is the main player. It uses the IAB system, but it also uses its own system. And I have a separate proceeding um, with the the GDPR enforcer in Ireland on that question too. On the data broker side, I do not know why they have not consolidated, (laughs) but the, the big names are very big indeed. You will be familiar with some of them. Equifax. <laughs> mm, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You may have heard of them. Oh, yeah. Oracle. Mm-hmm. Oracle, also not small. TransUnion. Crooks, which was bought, K-R-U-X, which was bought by by um, Salesforce. So mm. there's a bunch of these, of these people. The FTC um, did a very useful piece of work, and then it kind of stopped there. But it did a very useful piece of work. <laughs> In 2013, it published a, a big study on data brokers in the United States. And it is well worth doing a search for that that 2013 FTC study on data brokers. The appendix includes a list of what can be bought. And 
it is staggering the information that can be bought about us. So I don't know why there has not been consolidation, but uh, there are certainly big, big players, and they are, as a litigant, they are big, fat, juicy targets. <laughs> <laughs> so you okay? So you mentioned in the second part uh, that they what they do with this data once they get it. What does happen with that data? Are they allowed to store it or share it or sell it? What is it unregulated? Is it regulated just out in forest? Well, the question is where. Hmm. So. Alistair McTaggart um, in California was very surprised when he learned that data brokers could acquire data about him, but also his children, and that they could do whatever the hell they wanted with it, essentially, with a few carve-outs for health data and so on. And so he worked with others. He, he worked very hard on this idea of a do-not-sell law, mm -hmm. which uh, ultimately was introduced. But um, then the question was, what does sell mean? Right. And it was heavily diluted. So mm. then he came out with a second initiative. And uh, we now have a follow-on law, the, the CPRA. Right, yeah. Uh, the California Privacy Rights uh, Act. And that is much, 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 much stronger. The first act really was a not really of, of much consequence. Mm. So... We have to see how enforcement of that act goes. And uh, there's been some sign that enforcement may be reasonably robust, but we have to wait and see. Um, in Europe, but not just in Europe, in the many jurisdictions that have enacted or are due to enact clones of the GDPR, and that's more than half of the global GDP mm. if you stack it up. So this is kind of a, a de facto standard emerging which is based on those American ideas from the 70s. None of this is, is, is lawful. None of it. Hmm. When I described to you how real-time bidding works, what I described was a data free-for-all in which you cannot really have any idea of what will happen to your data. I could tell you that these 100 companies will receive your data or 600 companies will receive your data, but I have no idea what they're going to do with it. Hmm. <laughs> None at all. And any time you, you travel in Europe, you'll find yourself confounded by these nonsense, spam, supposed consent requests. Oh, right. Yeah. This is another IAB creation, funnily enough. And I am involved in a procedure in Belgium to have that destroyed. But this consent spam is a kind of purported, uh, our lawyers call it a source of legality. A thin, I think it's a bad translation from the Dutch. Um, the, a, a thin veneer of, of kind of compliance theater over the underlying data breach. But actually what the law says is, if you're not able to protect the data, because remember it's the general data protection regulation, you can't even ask for consent because you don't even know what you're asking for consent for. Mm. So going through the motions of seeking consent is, I mean, I, it, it, it's, it's at least a nuisance. Right. Um, but at worst, it's an aggravating dishonest practice. It's, yeah, it's its own type of dark pattern. It's just, it's just annoying thing to get you to the point where eventually you go like, okay, okay. It's, it's almost like terms of service, right? You know, I just want to use the app. Just get out of my way. Yeah. You know, and yeah. you just start clicking whatever big button they give you first. Um, but that does not mean it's lawful. Correct. So let's imagine as we consider 
the magic of so-called consent, which is dishonest. Let's imagine that I am taking you for a picnic to the roof garden of Data Broker Towers, and it's 200 stories high. It's the tallest building in the land. And as we climb through the stairs, Gary, um, I say to you, we're going to have a wonderful picnic and we're going to talk about your life. And would it be okay if we take up this little box of records, you know, your, your school records, trophies, what your teachers thought about you, photographs of you as a kid. And you say, yeah, I'd love that. I'd love to talk about me <laughs> <laughs> while sipping champagne with you. Mm. So up there on the roof, when the picnic begins, I take that box of your records and I chuck it over the side of the building. <laughs> It, fully expecting my business partners to scramble about in the streets and photocopy each piece of paper and then for them to send it on to their business partners who'll photocopy it and so on. The fact that you said okay to right. a picnic does not mean you said okay to a data breach. Right, right. <laughs> and, and since I have no idea what those people scrambling to photocopy your intimate secrets, you know, turns out you were terrible in school. <laughs> and since I have no idea what they're going to do with that information, I can't even ask you for your consent. Now, right. let's think about what those information might be used for. Maybe, and the same goes for RTB too, maybe we can see things that could be useful for an algorithm which might be in the position of shortlisting you for your next job application. You might have been shortlisted and then kicked off the list mm -hmm. because of some of these data. Mm -hmm. Or a health insurer might see, oh, when this guy was a child, he had the following, mm -hmm. <laughs> or he's now searching for the following. Right. Um, you know, this is really important stuff. The problem with privacy, which the tracking industry likes to call the privacy paradox, <laughs> Mm. Uh, Pro-privacy people call it the paradox of the privacy paradox. <laughs> the real problem is one that a behavioral economist will be intimately familiar with. Nobody spends any time thinking about their pension, nor do they spend any time thinking about health insurance. Maybe maybe you spent a few days in your life thinking about these things, but really, you, you don't. Right? right, right. You may or may not have either. And... It is hard work, especially younger people. It is very hard work to get them to think about pensions. Mm. And you only think about these things when it's too late. Every behavioral economist knows this. And yet when it comes to privacy, somehow it seems to be a domain where we don't worry about behavioral insights that we've known for a long, long time. And the industry shakes its hands in the air and says, but there's a privacy paradox. People say they want privacy, mm. but then they don't behave in a way that protects their privacy. Right. Actually, the fact is, there are not many ways you can protect your privacy. You just can't. Right. Now, if you want to be like one of the lone gunmen from the early days of the X-Files, you can, of course, go the route of the tinfoil hat and opt out of modern life. But beyond that, all you can really do is is buy from a manufacturer who you have more confidence in. Maybe you, you decide Apple is that manufacturer. Maybe maybe you use a browser like Brave or Firefox with some plugins that you hope are going to protect you. But ultimately, there's not a whole lot you can do. And what the legislator has done, at least in Europe, but increasingly elsewhere, is to say, it's not on you. It's not your responsibility. You do not have to look after yourself mm. because 
we are instituting publicly funded, highly empowered supervisory authorities, and they shall have the power to obtain access to any premises. They have the power to obtain any information from any company. And even the most powerful companies in the world can be told by these enforcers. And of course, you can appeal it in court, but the enforcer will be able to defend their case in court too. Even the most powerful companies in the world can be told not only pay a significant fine, but can be told, stop doing what you're doing with those data. Start changing how you behave as a business internally. Now, that is the most power you can imagine. And the law in the GDPR says the individual citizen doesn't need to wear a tinfoil hat because they will be protected by empowered enforcers. And the problem, of course, though, is that the enforcers haven't done their jobs. So now people like me have to use the private right of action and go to court ourselves. Gotcha. All right. I want to ask a few specific questions about this. Since, you know, since this process is, you know, entirely automated, these are all happening in milliseconds. Um, mm. Do actual people like ever view this personal data? Like, am I worried that, that the, the, the contents of these real-time bidding requests is actually being viewed by a human? And if, if so, is this data actually stored against my name or some other identifier that can be attached to me? Or is this all just bots and computers? And obviously, it's it's rife for abuse if somebody decided to look at it. But generally speaking, on a day-to-day -day basis, is you know somebody learning about me personally, some human? Okay, lots in that question. First, <laughs> bots. I don't know if you've seen the Terminator film. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that really scary human being with the red eyes? <laughs> mm, yeah, right. So look, I, I, I'm being facetious. Before I answer the question, it doesn't matter is the answer. Mm. <laughs> That's mm, the sure. first answer. If automated decisions can disadvantage you in your, your opportunity to be employed in the job you want, your opportunity to get health insurance or a mortgage, or to be targeted with something that might... Um, misinform you on something that's important, which could mm -hmm. be politics, could be something completely different. That's a problem. And as, as a scalable problem, it may be more of a problem if there's no human involved and if it's algorithmic. Second, what we're talking about here are in bid requests are highly specific, unique identifiers about a person long strings of numbers and letters that single you out. And we're also talking about things like GPS coordinates and your online behavior. So it is, as a thought experiment, it would be interesting to think about how long it would take to single you out of a crowd using that information. Mm. I don't think it would take very long at all, right. in fact. Now, suddenly it all changes with, with, with lockdowns and so on. But, mm. you know, even following a person's commute to work, <laughs> this is, I'd imagine, trivial. So right, right. single out ability, uh, that's a terrible <laughs> phrase I've just, I've just coined. Let me uncoin that. But single out ability is the test of whether data are legally personal data in some jurisdictions. These data are definitely personal data in, the, in that sense. 
Now, another question. Can you go to a data broker and say, I want to find, I, I, I want to build profiles of everyone working on the Hill, and I want to know who's a senator in which party, and I want to know, you know, which toilet they go to. Is it the male or female one? You know, and so on and so forth. Like, even if we were just talking about accurate GPS, if we are talking about accurate GPS, depending on the RTB companies involved, um, we'd be able to do that with GPS, I'm imagining. Mm -hmm. uh, I haven't tried to do it myself. <laughs> I'm on the other side. Um, so I, I think the answer is yes. Now, this, the, the other unspoken question maybe was, is there a huge database here with everyone's name and address and those databases are being updated all the time with loads of data sources, including RTB. Is that happening? My answer is I don't know, but it sounds really possible to me. Hmm. Um, and it certainly uh, when you have a system built with, with no control in the way that this system is built and then aimed at what everyone is doing on the internet and where they physically are, it seems inevitable right. uh, that we should be at least worried about those risks. Uh, let's hope they haven't materialized, but I'd be surprised if they haven't. Well, I, and I think that's the thing that a lot of people still don't quite understand. They might think, oh, this is all in bins, separate bins, separate companies. This, this, these guys only know this about me and those guys only know that about me. But <laughs> when you, as soon as you, it doesn't take much correlation between data sets to, to really refine and figure out who you're talking about. I've seen studies saying that you can identify a person with just three GPS coordinates from their phone. Because if they went to work that day and they, mm -hmm. you know, so you know they were at work, you, you know where they went at night, that's probably where they live. And maybe right before work and right after work, they went to a school. In a, so if you looked at those three things, you could probably figure out exactly who that person was, even though you think, sure. you know, how could you do that? And it, yeah. it's the correlated, it's the correlations that you can draw and computers are great at this. <laughs> you know, between data sets that really makes it scary. Well, when you are doing your exercise of opening up the developer terminal in your browser and looking for the header bidding, that's the auction of auctions in real-time bidding, it's going to be hard for you to, to find the header bidding calls because there'll be so many synchronization calls happening at the same time. Mm. Your developer window showing network requests just gets packed, it just keeps coming. Sync after sync after sync after sync. You'll see Google doing it. You'll see AT&T's company, um, sorry, yeah, AT&T's company, Xander. You'll see loads of companies trying to coordinate what each knows about everyone else. And it's not just real-time bidding companies. It's also social sharing widgets and many others. So you are stepping into a web, a lattice of, of sensors, essentially, where, you know, dozens of companies on a single web page are, are all trying to coordinate what they know about you. And, and funnily enough, they're all trying to help each other out mm. to know you better. Mm -hmm. So, yes, this idea of coordination, you can see it without any detailed investigation. You can see it in your browser mm. as you're doing it. But back to real-time bidding for a moment. If you read the developer documents for one of the big ad exchanges kind of number two after Google is called Xander. I mentioned it. Mm -hmm. It's owned by AT&T. Xander's documents say that if, if, if your website sends a request for bids for the opportunity to show me an ad, it will ignore those requests unless they include an identifier 
that Xander has previously huh. synchronized. Oh, wow. So they must already have coordinated a profile about me for me to be useful for them to show an ad to. <laughs> Jeez. So, like, it's it's all being filed away like toxic waste, slicking the slicking the ramp down to some sort of dystopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what the industry, unfortunately, is all about. It's a huge free-for-all of incredibly sensitive data about us all. Let me ask you one one more maybe devil's advocate question about this, and that is you've labeled this the biggest data breach in history, mm-hmm. which to me, as somebody who's reported on this, implies that perhaps I could go to the dark web and I could look up my, uh, you know, there are people out there actively selling my data, or mm-hmm. I could at least go download it as part of some big breach, you know, that someone has published online and is perhaps selling or not. And then kind of as a follow-up, do we know, have there, is there actually, we've, we've talked about this kind of in an ivory tower theory perspective, this could be abused, this could lead to bad things, but and it's not just like an academic question, because in legal senses, many times you have to show standing or you have to show harm. Do we, do we actually have evidence that this data has been abused, uh, maybe Cambridge Analytica or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. Uh, do we do we know that this is, it's not just theoretical, this is actually happening? Okay, first, we don't need to show any particular harm in Europe where the court case is being held. Mm. It is on its face unlawful. Now, there are intangible harms that we can point to uh, just for a bit of color for the court. I've been gathering evidence on real-time bidding for years and dishing it out to supervisory authorities who have filed it away and done absolutely nothing with that evidence. (laughs) But the last big tranche of that evidence before this court case, when I finally decided, okay, I've had enough, we're going to court ourselves. The last big tranche of evidence was, I think, September last year. In that evidence, I showed several examples of where RTB data had been used by data brokers. Now, one of them, uh, for example, was in Poland. Now, Poland is an interesting country at the moment. Uh, There is a undercurrent that is becoming an overcurrent of homophobia. Hmm. And whether whatever your own feelings uh-huh. uh, about homophobia, it is a fact that some municipalities in Poland are proposing, and I think may have set up, what they call gay-free zones. Oh, wow. Places where you're not allowed to be gay. Oh. Um, now, clearly there is a risk to some people in Poland yeah. identifying uh, whether you're homosexual or not. Now, cut to the data story. A data broker called OnAudience, which is owned by a company called Cloud Technologies, which is a Polish company, built a a database and announced this in its marketing material, (laughs) Mm. Uh, which is how I know. They built a database of 1.4 million people who were uh, gay or sympathetic to oh, uh, to gay people and gay and trans and so on issues. Funnily enough, uh, the story gets more complicated. Um, this database was built to support a uh, advertising campaign for pro-gay rights political candidates mm. in the parliamentary election. So they were micro-targeting gay or gay sympathetic people to show them ads to try and stimulate their vote. Now, if you are supportive of gay rights, you'll think that is a good campaign. It's a good thing that they ran that campaign. And funnily enough, it was funded by the European Commission. Hmm. But 
if you are conscious of the data protection problems here, mm-hmm. building a database of 1.4 million gay or gay sympathetic people in a country where that could be a problem yeah. uh, seems like a very disproportionate and irresponsible act. And the fact that it was paid for by the European Commission is astounding and <laughs> staggering. So, so that's a very mild example, but it's a practical one. Now, there's, a, there's another company, um, Uber Media, which is not associated with the other Uber. Okay. Uber Media were uh, running workshops during uh, the initial COVID period where they were showing how they could map the movement of homeless people around San Francisco in and around shelters. And they mm. were using this to show whether the lockdown was working or not. Hmm. Okay. Now, okay, from a public health perspective, Maybe there's some merit to that. Uh, maybe there isn't. I mean, I certainly wouldn't want these guys doing it <laughs> if I was to have it done. Uh-huh. But they were also doing the same thing about uh, people in Milan, in Italy. You know, when Italy had its its um, its major COVID outbreak. Now, it certainly wasn't okay in that jurisdiction for them to be doing that. So we had a few unusual examples. Another example was again, on audience, we're using that incest slash abuse support category mm. uh, to put people into that silo. And when I looked at whether you could, you know, use data about people with that tag in Ireland, yes, you could for 100 people. Huh. Uh, now, this is a problem. In the US, I know different people have different ideas about what information ICE should have access to mm-hmm. or what information different parts of the security apparatus should and should not have access to. We know, and it's been documented, that RTB data has been, you know, bundled up and packaged up as a data product for uh, different parts of the security and Mm. uh, border and and so on Mm. agencies. There's a question about whether that should be so. And in the jurisdiction where I live, the, the answer would definitely be no, unless... You have gone through a whole lot of hoops <laughs> yeah. to to make it lawful, right? It certainly shouldn't be done by default. Right. And I think in the U.S. there's probably quite a few people who would agree that. So here's another issue, though, with the data broker system. It is hidden. Right. Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> we don't know what it's doing. Yep. Every now and again, there's a there's a scandal, and we we get a a, a glimpse of what's happening. The real answer, and I'm giving you very long answers, for which I apologize, um, but I'm going to make this answer even longer now. <laughs> the real answer to your question of essentially what's the documented harm is, we can see what the data are by finally seeing in the IAB audience taxonomy what these people are putting into their hidden dossiers behind our backs about each of us. We can see what they want to know about us. And I don't want any of them to know that stuff. Right. I don't want them to know my health. Definitely not. I don't want them to know my politics. Again, definitely not. And on top of that, I don't want them knowing my diet, Mm. my, my entertainment preferences, none of that stuff. And let's think about the upside here. Often what I've presented as, as the upside is, well, hang on. If we didn't have a system that surveilled everyone on the planet and a tie, you know, attached unique ID codes that could identify them everywhere, you know, across all of their devices, then 
can you imagine what would happen? We might show you as a male an ad for, you know, a female sanitary product. Uh, the horror. This, oh, my God. <laughs> the, instead of the Hindenburg burning and someone right. shouting the horror, it's that's a tampon right. burning right. in the sky. That's right. What a dystopian <laughs> uh, future we, we're uh, avoiding uh, with this. Uh, I, I have to create that slide. Now, here's the thing. <laughs> I grew up on a diet of TV advertising and some of the ads were uh, ridiculously misleading. You know, it was like some fit young woman rollerblading because it was her time of the month, you know, mm, right. <laughs> body form. Um, <laughs> so it, was, it was a great ad. Mm. I do the groceries in mm. my home. And I have a daughter and I have a wife. So you mm -hmm. should show me right. those damn ads. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine was was at one of these events where the, the data industry gets together and uh, sips cocktails. And some very caring uh, member of the data industry was having an argument about privacy and said, but what if, what if someone had, had a miscarriage and we then showed them an ad for baby products? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this was the supposed reason why this industry should know whether you've had a miscarriage. Oh, jeez. If it's in your financial interest to not have common sense, well, then you won't have sense. That's where we are. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay. So before we move on to, I think, some more forward uh, thinking topics, I, let's, let's, you've talked about the, the, the lawsuit quite a bit. So let, let's, let's dive into the details a little bit. Tell me a little bit about this lawsuit that you're filing in Germany. What, you know, what are you alleging? What laws are you saying have been broken? Mm -hmm. Uh, what is the status of, uh, of that suit and where, where do things uh, likely go in the near future? Okay. So first issue is jurisdiction. I'm an Irish person. I live in Dublin in Ireland. And the, let's say, first defendant is a New York-based organization. <laughs> so <laughs> where does that leave us? Right. <laughs> well, actually, there's a number of ways of, uh, of tackling that. The way we are tackling it is to say this New York-based organization has its European uh, office, its presence in law, you'd say, its establishment mm. in the city of Hamburg in Germany. So that is where we will litigate. Mm. There are other defendants, too. They are both represented in Hamburg also. The fact that I am in Dublin is neither here nor there. It makes no difference. So I go to the Hamburg uh, Regional Court and I say... When I visited a particular website uh, operated by a publisher that is based in Hamburg, the following system processed my data. The party involved is, on the one hand, a technology company based in Hamburg, and on the other is using the system that is controlled by this New York-based organization, which is also present here in Hamburg. So will you please tell them to stop doing that? <laughs> <laughs> Now, that's essentially what the court case says. Okay. Um, now, why does it say stop doing that? Well, as, as it explains, um, this system causes an enormous data breach. We have no idea where the data go. So that, that infringes the core principles of the GDPR. Now, the GDPR is, you know, in theory, it's quite complicated. It's about 90,000 words, including mm. recitals. But it's actually very well written. It's really clear. And the whole thing is summarized in less than a page, way less than a page if you remove all the white space, in Article 5. 
right? So all the way up to Article 4 is the basics. You know, here's the jurisdiction. Article 4 is here's the definitions. But Article 5 says, here are the principles of data protection. One of the principles is thou shalt protect data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. And it doesn't say thou and shalt, right, right, but right, you right. get the idea. <laughs> Don't have a damn data breach. Mm. So here's a system that is inherently a data breach. Uh, we're saying, please stop doing that. The second thing we're saying is, and once that data breach has occurred, the same people who are listed here as a defendant have a system called the audience taxonomy and another one called the content taxonomy or context taxonomy. And those things can be used to infer very, very sensitive things about me. And I'd like them to stop doing that too, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, that's essentially it. But we talk about problems a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. and I like to talk about solutions where possible, not just complain about things, but think about how we might think better. Um, is there a privacy-respecting solution to this problem that would still allow for an ad-supported business model? Because that seems to be what we prefer on the web. Um, you know, for instance, Google's Flock. Uh, you know, there's a lot. We've talked about that recently on the show. There's a lot of pros and cons, but at least it's an attempt at trying to have it both ways. And Sir Tim Berners-Lee, the one of the fathers of the internet, or the web, has something called solid. We've talked about that as well, too. Is there a way, is it possible, in your, in your view, to have an ad-supported web-based economy that is somehow privacy-respecting? I think the answer is yes, definitely. Let's talk about Flock for a moment. Flock was announced by um, David uh, Temkin, a former colleague of mine, when I was at Brave, Uh, David was the chief product officer Hmm. there. And part of his role was to make Brave's form of advertising, which are very private, operate. And a lot of the logic, well, pretty much all of the logic actually happens on the device. So Flock is a little bit similar. Now, I analyzed the the Fledge and Flock and so on proposals Mm -hmm. a few months ago and published the analysis. And basically what I said is, As with many things that Google says, the devil is probably in the detail of which there is none. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) right. You know, we really don't know what this thing is. Maybe it's an improvement. Maybe, I mean, it's not a disimprovement, but let's see. Uh, So I'm not enthusiastic or unenthusiastic about Flock. Uh, We need to see some detail to know what the hell it is and isn't. Um, However, let's talk about some privacy-preserving methods in very abstract ways, right? Right now, we have a data free-for-all where when you, Kerry, visit a web page about something incredibly sensitive, so you go to embarrassingwebsite.com slash, you know, quite compromising topic slash unbearably excruciating embarrassing article name, Uh, Mm -hmm. um, You know, let's imagine the URL gives it all away, which it doesn't always. And then I, uh, the the publisher, send that information out to all of my closest friends, (laughs) all 900 of them. Uh, Okay, so that broadcast model is a problem when the information being sent out are personal. But if if the information sent out were not personal, it would not be a problem. Mm -hmm. Now, what I mean by that is, If there's no way to single you out at all, and if there's no way to link together the information with any other information about you, then there's no risk. 
mm. of the data ever becoming personal. This is a different thing to so-called pseudonymous data. Mm. I'm talking about properly anonymous. Now that means things like granular timestamps could not be used. Right. right? So you, you would have to change some elemental things, but I think it's doable. And you could have a real-time bidding auction using purely non-personal data. And that may or may not be a sensible thing to do. If that does happen, the advertising technology firms who today are making out like bandits will lose power and money to publishers. And they'll also hmm. probably be giving advertisers a far, far better deal hmm. than they've been doing until now. Also, I think worthy publishers, and by, by worthy I mean publishers who would have a business model in any case, not necessarily subscription, but that, that aren't trading off arbitraging other publishers' audiences would do very well. Now, I better explain what I, what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. I used to write for a newspaper called The Irish Times. Let's imagine you go to irishtimes.com and you read about business and you read about motor cars, and then you start reading reviews of expensive, really expensive electrical saloon cars. Ooh. <laughs> you are the most desirable person on the internet now. Right. And in, in our market, the Irish Times is a kind of an upmarket newspaper. And, uh, you know, a business person who wants to buy a, a, an expensive car, well, Audi wants that that guy, Lexus wants that guy, BMW wants that guy. So as you go around the internet, everyone is going to try to find you at a cheaper price than the Irish Times would, would like to pay for you. Mm. And when you go on to, you know, bikinibabes.com or, you know, conspiracytheoryoftheweek.com, um, those websites will be putting out their bid requests and all of the companies that receive these bid requests on behalf of advertisers will suddenly see, oh my gosh, there's that auto intender, that high-end mm. car potential buyer. And he's an Irish Times reader. Oh my gosh. Instead of paying 10 credits, whatever the currency mm -hmm. is, for this guy, we only have to pay 0.5. And of course, we're not going to tell the advertiser what we actually pay, so we can take five. <laughs> <laughs> and the advertiser thinks they've got a discount of, you know, 4.95. Right, right, right. Uh, now, what happens there is a um, crank website about all of the things that Johnny hates for no particular reason uh, that should have been a project in my shed now has a business model arbitraging the Irish Times' audience. The Irish Times can no longer charge the same amount for its ad right. tomorrow that it charged today and is suicidally stupid and using this system to broadcast information about its only asset, its unique audience. So that problem would, would go away. And another problem would go away. Often it's not Kerry who is reading the Irish Times or mm. whatever the publisher is. It's a piece of software pretending to be a human, mm. running on a smartphone on a rack in a warehouse. <laughs> right, right. And right, these, these bots are sent by criminals go to, you know, whatever the website is, build up a profile as a, you know, a, a prospect there, and then come back to our criminal website and bring back that advertising money with you, please. So huge problems with the status quo, massive. And yep. 
those problems are a real issue for the sustainability of publishers of all hues, of all types, whatever your political stripe or your view and, and whether you like forums or whether you like newspapers, this is a problem for everyone. That problem will be much, I think, diminished. Now, if you were to talk to the so-called anti-ad fraud industry, which I think is really not very good at its job from, from what I've seen, they would say we need more tracking so we can tell who, who a human is. Right. So the first thing is, yes, you can have non-personal RTB, I very strongly suspect, but it would take some rigorous analysis to prove that, that, that point. Uh, and it should be done publicly, not by the IAB, by credible researchers who, who show their maths. But a big part of the RTB industry will, will resist that because they make money from the inefficient status quo. The second possibility is where the first option was to take the broadcast method and make it safe. The second option is to broadcast nothing and to keep all information on the device, mm -hmm. so-called edge, right? To keep it at the edge rather than send it out to thousands of other companies. This is the Brave model. Uh, others are trying it too. I'm most familiar with the Brave model, so I'll tell you how it works. Uh, if you use the browser Brave, it'll say, would you like to build a profile on your device about your viewing habits, your reading habits? No one will get access to those data, but the device will use what it learns about you to show you offers that it thinks might be of interest. And the analogy might be, if this thing works really well, the analogy might be, it's like having a personal assistant go through your spam mm. folder and every now and again say, oh, actually there's something good here. Now that's, mm. there's, that's, that's the hope. That would solve all of the privacy issues and data protection issues. It wouldn't necessarily address the algorithmic discrimination issue. Mm -hmm, right. So this is a, a potential problem that Brave and others you know, need to grapple with. I, I think Brave probably has, but uh, it's a while since I worked there, so I don't know the detail. In the 70s, if you were an Irish guy going to London, or the 60s, I should say, an Irish guy going to London because there was no work at home, you might be confronted with signs in shop windows saying, no Irish, hmm. no dogs, no Irish. Oh my. Yeah, and, and I think uh, if you were black, you were included in the sign too. Mm. Now, things have changed. That's a long, long time ago. I, I mention it just to say, let's imagine you have an edge-based ad system where no device ever leave, sorry, no data ever leave the device. But let's imagine I'm a client, sorry, a customer of this system. I could put in, conceivably, I could put in an ad saying, I don't want any Irish hmm. for this particular thing. Uh, now, you know, that's a problem we're going to be grappling with, with lots of different technologies after we've solved the privacy problem. Right. Yeah. It's also a problem with, with the status quo privacy issue. But two viable alternatives. One is remove personal data, and broadcast away personal data, including timestamps uh, that are granular. The other solution is don't broadcast anything. Either way, the common factor they both have is you don't throw around personal data. <laughs> right, to thousands of people, yeah, or thousands of companies, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, one more question, or maybe two before we wrap up. I, I Personally, I, I think that uh, uh, the reason that it's taken so long for some of these things to to take root in terms of privacy regulations and 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 reigning in this industry is the lack of transparency. And you alluded to this earlier. What is your? I'm curious to get your opinion. What is what is your 
opinion on how important trans just transparency is to this whole thing. If if people were truly able to see, you know, all the data that's being collected and and shared, do you think that would finally maybe cause action to occur either at an individual level or perhaps uh, on a regulatory level? I don't know. GDPR happened because of Snowden. Hmm. If we had not had that huge event, uh, that disclosure, we would not have a GDPR in its current shape. Hmm. It was the most lobbied against uh, law, <laughs> um, at least up until that point in you know European legislative history, in the Union anyway. Cambridge Analytica, again, a big prompt. But fundamentally, as far as the citizen is concerned, it doesn't matter whether they're scared or not. It's not supposed to matter. Mm. You are not supposed to have to cover your own butt here. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least in Europe and in, in the, the other GDPR clone jurisdictions, the law has you covered if the enforcers are doing their jobs. Now, the problem is, of course, that they aren't. It's a huge, huge problem, but it shouldn't matter. Right. Now, ultimately, should <laughs> means I'm not talking about reality. And ultimately, it kind of does matter. It is important to have transparency of data processing because the parties involved have to be accountable. You, as the, as the data subject, you may not own the data, at least in Europe, because property rights are not associated with the fundamental rights of data protection. It's a, it's a different strand of, mm-hmm. of, of law. Sometimes that point gets confused, but it's an important one in the GDPR. You, though, never lose control over your data. That's the fundamental. There's never a situation where things can be done that you are not in some way accountable to about. Mm. So, for example, there's the famous Max Schrems case yeah. where, you know, Max is saying, look, it, it may well be that it's useful to have a security apparatus. It may well be that it's useful to have a security apparatus that is sifting through my intimate secrets, although it gives me the creeps. But Max's issue is, but I, as a non-US citizen, don't have any court that I can go to mm. to make sure that there's no funny business. Mm. Right, so right. so it, it comes back, and he, he's doing this under the GDPR, it comes back to that fundamental idea that the person always is able to assert themselves and, you know, control what is being done with their data, even if the state security apparatus says, hang on, to protect citizens, we're stepping in and we're, we're going to check through your laundry. You can always still go to the court ultimately and say, hang on, was, was that not disproportionate? Should they have done that? So transparency is an important enabler of that kind of control. But would it have prompted an enormous backlash? I think it certainly might. Um, Mm -hmm. A sticking point between Republicans and Democrats in the US on the question of a privacy law that is worth the name, a sticking point is the private right of action. Now, this is, I mean, it's like, like many things. It is close to a dogma or an ideology, depending on which side you're on. Yeah. But I think a few more scandals would not go amiss <laughs> <laughs> to, to kind of get us over that bump of this private right of action. It's, 
it's clear in the European context that you can empower your enforcers in all sorts of ways. But if they just aren't any good or aren't willing to be good, having a private right of action is life and death to a legal regime like this. And, and that, that's what this court case is all about. All right. Final question. Given the current state of affairs, as we've laid it out today, you know, when people ask you, inevitably, you know, it's like people ask me, you know, computers, you know, privacy, what should I be doing today? Well, you know, how, how do I stop this? How do I protect myself? You know, given that regulations are where they are, uh, is there anything I can do? What What do you tell these people when your friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members say, you know, Johnny, what, how, do, how do I protect my privacy today? What What do you recommend to them? I say, listen to the NSA, baby. <laughs> the NSA published a, a piece of public guidance to all federal agencies about, I think, three years ago. And they were prompted, actually, by, by uh, Senator Wyden, I think, mm. to do this. Mm -hmm. The guidance says to all agencies of government, stop letting ads run on your browsers. Hmm. It's not that the NSA is against advertising per se. It's that a foreign adversary could at any time take out a credit card and buy uh, the right and the ability to put ads into your browser. And those ads contain, you know, executable code. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> now, that's, of course, an issue of national security. But the same thing applies to us all. It astounds me that some people aren't using a browser that blocks ads by default yeah, or, or haven't installed a blocker like uBlock Origin that does a good job of blocking ads. One thing to be aware of, of course, is there are some ad block tools that I would not necessarily trust. But I, for myself, I, I use Brave, the browser produced by the company mm -hmm. I used to work for. And whenever I'm confronted by a consent request, I click yes to everything and because Brave's going to block it anyway. Right, right, right. <laughs> so yep. click yes and just block anyway. I sometimes might use a VPN, but not that often. My route here is, you know, if if we cannot protect ourselves through the law, this whole thing is lost. We will find ourselves in a dark present where we've all been profiled Systems we don't understand are doing things that we don't know with profiles about us that will disadvantage us in all sorts of ways. And this is so outrageously unlawful in this jurisdiction that the answer must be the law. If I if I didn't think that I had legal recourse, yes, I would be I would be taking more extreme technical measures. But you know what? Why should I? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it annoys me that I have to. So I only yes. take the measures that are convenient. Well, Johnny, that was just a fascinating discussion. And uh, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And thank you for doing what you're doing. And I, it, I, I agree that at the end of the day, it, we can't blame the victims for protect, you know, for not protecting themselves. We need, we need rules. We need referees. But in the meantime, I, I really think that, you know, things like what you're doing and drawing attention to this is crucial. So thank you. Thank you, Gary. And, and uh, just before we sign off, can I ask that if any of your listeners is active in these industries, they might consider getting in touch confidentially because uh, a little bit of insider information can go a very long way.
Absolutely. And how would they do that? What's the best way to reach you or maybe uh, sister organizations? Yeah. Um, so my contact details are on the iccl.ie website, iccl.ie. Wonderful. Thanks again, Johnny. Thank you, Gary. I want to thank Johnny again for coming on the show. Again, I just totally cold called this guy or, you know, cold tweeted or whatever. I reached out to him out of nowhere and uh, honestly didn't really expect to get a response. So glad he responded. So glad he was willing to come on the show because this is important stuff. And again, even though this is only happening in the EU, this is important for all of us. Uh, as we've seen with GDPR and some of these other regulations, uh, these companies don't want to try to individually comply with all these rules in one place and not another. So very often... When privacy gets improved one place, it also gets improved in others. And if nothing else, it's again, it's an awareness thing. And I know that uh, awareness isn't everything. And I totally agree with Johnny in that we cannot blame the victims. We cannot expect regular humans to take it upon themselves to prevent all this tracking. It's just not, it's not logistically possible. It's, it's a myth. It's a lie. We need regulators. We need somebody on our side setting some rules and having the teeth and the ability and the willingness to enforce those rules because left to their own devices, they will be using dark patterns and, and just wearing us down and hiding these things. And it's, there's just no way, honestly, for us as mere humans, mere mortals to prevent the kind of tracking and, and data exchanges that are going on. We need people like Johnny and his, and his team out there fighting for us. So I think it's an extremely noble and worthy cause, and I wish them the absolute best of luck. And as I said in the beginning of the show, if you are in any way related to this ad tech industry, these data brokers and all this exchange of data, uh, and if you've got some interesting information, they could use all the help they can get. And you could be a part of the solution and not part of the problem. So uh, there's a link in the show notes to Johnny's webpage on the ICCL site. And from there, you can find his contact information or someone else at the ICCL and reach out to them and let them know that you have something you might be able to share uh, that would help them out and help all of us out. And you might want to check out that link anyway. There's a couple of links there that you, uh, there's a link to a video, a little nine minute video with Johnny and some of his team talking about this lawsuit and what they're doing uh, a little bit more different angle, I guess, than what we took today, but that's worth a watch. And on Johnny's page in particular, there's a couple of videos that I watched in preparation for this interview of him testifying in front of U.S. Congress about these issues, which is also very interesting. So if you want some more, uh, you can get that right there off the ICCL website. Furthermore, Johnny mentioned a few things that I did manage to find and put links to in the show notes as well. One of them was the ADCOM spec, A-D-C-O-M, their 1.0 spec. This is the template, I guess, sort of thing, the, the, the thing that these ad industry people agree on to help them exchange this information in a standardized format. So that might be interesting to you. I've got a link on the show notes for that. He also mentioned a Federal Trade Commission, an FTC report. Uh, in 2014, I maybe he may have said 2013. I think I found that report. I put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, he also talked about a plugin that would let you kind of see the results of these uh, auction of auctions things, the little bit that you might be able to see from a web browser. Uh, I haven't got that from Johnny yet. I haven't been able to find it myself. If I uh, find out what that is, I'll put that in the show notes as well. But I also wanted to just say that if you have never done this already, it's really interesting. And I've told you on the show many times about how web pages that we view are really just patchwork quilts of bits of information, little 
the, the whole page is kind of subdivided up. And just because you go to one web address behind the scenes, what's really happening is you're likely going to dozens, like literally dozens of other websites to piece together this quilt of what you're seeing on that web page. Uh, much of that is advertising or tracking of some sort. And the developer tools that he talks about are available on every modern major, major browser, Chrome, uh, Firefox, for sure. I'm sure brave has it as well. Safari has it at, uh, but you have to kind of dig for it on Safari. It doesn't show by default. You need to go to the preferences and then the advanced tab. And then there's a little checkbox at the bottom that says uh, show develop menu in the menu bar. Uh, so anyway, if you do all that and you find the developer tools, it brings up this little pane at, at the bottom of the screen. And really what's going on there is a bunch of tabs, but it really is showing you what's going on behind the scenes when you load a web page. If you're curious at all uh, about what's really happening behind the scenes, check that out. Like start with the network tab. And what that will show you is all the individual requests that happen as the result of you going to that web page. And you might have to reload the web page to see it happen. Uh, but you'll see, you'll see it reach out to all these data brokers. You'll see it reach out to all these places to grab advertising images and other things too. Now it's not all advertising, but I think it's really interesting. And if, if you want to really kind of peek behind the curtains, you can do it right now. Uh, it's, it's a neat little tool. And this is the kind of stuff that hackers use to look at what web pages are doing and try to find vulnerabilities. So anyway, I, I find it fascinating. You might want to, for example, uh, try it with and without the ad blocker turned on. If you've got uBlock Origin, as Johnny mentioned, which is also one of my all-time faves, uh, you know, turn it on for a web page, load the page, look at the network tab and see what happens, and then turn it back off and, and do the same thing and, and note the differences. So anyway, I thought I'd mention that. It's really cool. And if you're at all interested about what's really happening on websites and what all the, <laughs> it's amazing, really, uh, what's happening behind the scenes that I think you might find that interesting. All right. So next week, DEF CON, baby. I am going to one of the biggest hacker conferences on the planet in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, where they're having, unfortunately, a huge surge in COVID cases. Thank goodness I've got my shots. We will be wearing masks everywhere in the heat, but I am super, super psyched about going very much looking forward to my very first DEF CON and I'm bringing you with me next week's episode will be live. Well, live on tape, as they like to say, uh, I'll be recording a lot of snippets while at the show. And so just a couple caveats. So first of all, I am still going to be in Vegas on Monday. And so it's, I will try to get the show edited and posted while I'm gone. So it comes out at the usual, uh, roughly 8 a.m. Eastern time U.S. Uh, on, on Monday, a week from now. I am cannot promise that. Uh, in fact, I'd say there's more than an even chance that it will not show up at the regular time. So just be aware of that. It may not come out until uh, Monday night or Tuesday morning, Eastern time. We shall see. I'm still going to endeavor to try to get it out. I think that'd be really cool if I can manage to get it all done while I'm there and post it. But, you know, expect, for example, the audio quality is not going to be as good. And there's going to be a lot of background noise and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I'm hoping that you guys will be able to kind of vicariously uh, experience DEF CON through me and through these audio snippets. Uh, for the patrons, I'm going to be trying to grab some extra video and things like that that I will be posting as bonus content. But I want to bring as much of that to everybody as possible because my goal, and maybe this is naive, but my goal for this trip really is to try to help you, my audience, understand what it means to hack and be a hacker because it's probably not what you think it is certainly not from you know what you see in movies and you know with all the bad press right now going around about malware and ransomware you know you might think all hackers are bad they're absolutely not hacking is a tool like anything else and can be used for good or evil and and at defcon 
this is a group of people who are very creative, who are tinkerers, who are inventors, who like to, you know, study things and figure out how they work and take them apart and put them back together in new and interesting ways. Uh, it's a very interesting mindset. And they are there for the the vast majority uh, of the people at you know, conferences like DEF CON are there to use their powers for good. And what they do is, one of the things they do, and they'll be doing a lot of this at DEF CON, uh, like the Hackasat program we talked about, and there's a, a election voting machine village where they're doing this with voting machines. They're taking the products that we use every day, IoT devices, computers, websites, and they're trying to break them. Um, and then they're trying to responsibly disclose those to the owners so that they can fix them so that we are not going to be hacked by the black hat hackers, the people who really want to get our money or make some sort of political statement or whatever. Anyway, I'm hoping to bring that essence, all of that to you guys in next week's show. It's going to be very interesting. It's going to be very different, but I really hope you enjoy it. I'm super psyched about going to this. Uh, it's going to be probably DEF CON light this year. Uh, it's the 29th version of DEF CON. And last year it was what they called safe mode, which I don't think they've ever done before. It was all virtual because of COVID. And this year it's going to be hybrid. Uh, so uh, some live, some some remote. And I, I already actually know people who are going to try to go and have already pulled out because the COVID's gotten so bad there. Uh, I'm still going. I've got my shots. I'm going to be wearing a mask. Uh, I'm hoping that I'll, I'll be fine, certainly, and I'm hoping I certainly wouldn't catch it and spread it to anybody else. But I'm I'm really looking forward to this. I, I'm looking to do some some networking. I want to find some really great people. I'm sure I'll line up some really cool interviews from that. I'm going to be doing a lot of like on-the-spot roving reporter kind of interviews with my mobile setup. Uh, and so I'm going to try to interview some of the goons. The goons are the, uh, not really security, it's not quite the word, but they do security. But they also kind of keep the trains running on time. They're the organizers that walk around in special shirts when you need help. They're the people that help keep the show running. I've got at least one killer interview that I'm trying to do, but I don't want to say for sure that it's going to happen until it happens. Fingers crossed. But I'm very excited about this. Uh, I hope you're really going to enjoy this show. It's going to be very different. But I also hope it's going to give you guys an idea of, of what hacking and hackers are all about and uh, give you a little taste of DEF CON. Now, on the off chance that you are going to be in Las Vegas uh, and going to be perhaps at DEF CON, and if you're one of those super cool people who have the much-coveted Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons Challenge coin... Present it to me, and that's worth a drink. And I honestly, I sincerely hope that I find somebody there so I can buy them a drink. And if so, I will capture that for the for the podcast as well. And if you don't have one of those coins, but you want one, there will be opportunities to get them in the near future. So stay tuned. And speaking of which, you can become a patron right now. I'm really, really enjoying uh, having the give and take with uh, my, my patrons, my uh, my fans, my listeners that are that are on Patreon, uh, on Discord. It's a lot of fun, and I'd love to have more of you guys there. So check out Patreon.com. Go to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. You'll find the information there. Come on in, join up on Discord, and we'll we can chat there. Also, uh, I'm starting to line up some of my public speaking events. I'm doing some webinars, some Zoom webinars on uh, cybersecurity, the basics of cybersecurity. So if that's something that you or a group that you are part of or a group that you may know might be interested in, just go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com and look at the contact tab and there's a little form there you can click to submit a request form. And, you know, for most small groups or whatever, it's going to be probably free. Uh, if you've got a larger group or maybe a more professional group, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. But really, I'm just trying to get the information out there. And then, you know, I've got the consulting thing where I do one-on-one -on -one stuff by the hour if you're interested in uh, some real direct help. All of that can be found on the contact page on Firewalls Dust Subdragons. 
All right, everybody. Big show next week. Keep your fingers crossed that all goes well. And again, if it doesn't show up first thing Monday morning, don't worry. It will be coming shortly after. So take care, everybody. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>